Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 34th episode of the Truth Island podcast. It's a Saturday night, and your doorbell is ringing every five minutes as more and more of your friends start piling into your apartment. They each bring with them a six-pack of beer, assorted snack items that you'll probably regret eating the next day. They start gathering around the TV set. Being the nice friend that you are, you have just sprung 89.95 for the big fight tonight. The night begins with some prelim matches with this up-and-comer against this no-name guy. Some of these fights are entertaining, but you casually tune in and tune out as these are not the fights that you really paid to see. You focus more on the Nacho Bowl, which you quickly see as diminishing as your hungry friends munch away, leaving crumbs all over the floor, which you and your wife will be begrudgingly having to deal with. Hey, why don't you order a pizza, one of your old high school friends shouts, and soon a small collection of assorted dollar bills begins to form on your table. Somehow, you'll have to stuff this into your wallet as the pizza place already has your credit card on file. It's now 11.10 and the last promo video has aired and the main event is about to begin. The music hits and some guy you've never heard of makes his way out, but your friends assure you that he is a top fighter. After he has settled into the ring, the heavyweight champion makes his way out, greeted to a thunderous applause. All the idle chatter in your house has now come to an end, and every set of eyes has now fixated their attention solely on the television set. The bell rings and the two men size each other up for a while, exchanging rabbit punches and with their guard up. However, after just two minutes, the champion rushes in and hits the challenger with a clean shot to the chin. Shh! Knockout. At first, your household goes wild with the replaying the show over and over and over again. However, a thought soon creeps into your mind. I paid 90 bucks for this? The energy in the room starts to shift. As some of your friends had told you only minutes ago that this would be an epic clash amongst titans are now retracting the caliber of the challenger, tossing in names of other opponents who would have been much better suited. When we think of any athletic competition, we often demand that the best athletes, the best teams compete with one another. We have extensive vetting systems such as playoffs and fighting records, which ensure that the two most qualified individuals or teams face off. But what about in the realm of ideas? Let me ask you a question. When was the last debate you can think of where two highly intelligent individuals who disagreed with one another, let's say both with doctorates or extensive graduate training, debated in the sphere of politics, philosophy, or even science for that matter. Joining me now to make sense of this issue, I am once again joined with Joe. Joe, help me understand, why aren't we into intellectual fights the same way we are as boxing matches? Hi, Aaron, uh, and thank you for having me on. One reason that we may not be able to, we may not even be able to form the demand of understanding who the other opponent is in certain circumstances because we live in our echo chambers on a daily basis. I think there are a lot of different reasons as to why that is. You know, I think that sometimes things like social media really are attention grabbing tools that essentially affirm what we believe. Therefore, we don't even necessarily know who the opponent would be hmm. in many circumstances. 
So we don't even know who to request as what would be a good dialogue and debate in a, in a, in a, as far as an opponent would be concerned. That's an awesome point and one that I actually did not consider at all. So let's just say, for example, you're a hardcore liberal or a hardcore conservative. You don't know who the highly intelligent person is on the other side. So you don't, if you're a hardcore conservative, you don't know what PhD you should invite from the other side to kind of argue against your side. So it's almost, you're, you're, you're almost, um, completely ignorant as to as, as to who would be a worthy adversary. That's right. And, and then this creates a vacuum where we only start to want to see our side actually prevail. And as far as the the concern is um, with being right. And I think this kind of speaks to a bigger problem is that we're more concerned with being right than to actually challenging our ideas. And I think that this now has become a time in, in specifically in political discourse where it is starting to uh, make it impossible to really engage with the other side because of this particular issue. Uh, and, you know, it's really a shame because I think we become afraid to mm. challenge ourselves in that process. And that's, and that's a scary thing. Let, let me like ask you this question, for example. So let's just say you have a prominent liberal economist, right? And this liberal economist is arguing for uh, more social welfare programs, more government intervention. I'm wondering like why there isn't this like impetus to at least research, like, okay, conservative economists or, or, or someone on the opposite side. And, and, you know, the same goes vice versa as well to look up someone who also has like a doctorate in that same field of study who has published papers that are opposing in nature. Like I, I, I even if you're unaware of who your opposition should be, I, I'm wondering why there isn't that urgency or that there isn't that initiative to do a quick Google search and see who's out there um, that you could argue with. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great point. And, you know, it really speaks to the idea of even how, we look at discourse in general and prepare ourselves, meaning that if I want to really re restate a problem or challenge somebody's opinion, I try and create a summary of their thoughts and trying to look at the world from the, their perspective. But this come, brings it back to the echo chambers where we're just looking for affirmation about our own ideas and turns into a, a shouting match. We really don't do that anymore. And I'm not exactly sure as to what was the main driver. I mean, inevitably, I do think the media has a huge role to play in this, uh, as far as these channels being so siloed in their audiences. But I think that there's a there's really, it's uh, a lack of interest in challenging our own ideas, and even taking the time to see why they've arrived at a certain conclusion. And especially when it comes to economics, I think that there's an important point here is that if you start to look at you're wrong in this one area, you might start to challenge all these other areas that you're thinking about. And I think that this would upend what you, you know, it creates a certain uh, unease with an individual where all of a sudden you find out you're wrong about, let's just say monetary theory. And then you start to wonder what else you're wrong about. Mm. And I think that we're unwilling to really engage with those types of uh, that type of uncertainty 
in you know in today's in today's environment anyway do you think that um i had this it's funny i just had this conversation earlier today that there's also a fear so let's say i'm an intellectual heavyweight um you know a 72 year old professor of economics and if i go against a strong opponent and they knock me down they just completely get me tied up then all of my life's work could theoretically go in the garbage. So there, there's this fear that if I go against a really strong opponent and they really know their stuff and they make, they embarrass me and make me look dumb. Not, not only do I have that shame and embarrassment, but now my like credibility and my life's work might be in jeopardy. Yeah. And I, but I, I, you know, that's the beauty of you. If you're a fighter using your analogy, yeah. you really want the best competition. Exactly. And that's what I don't understand is that why wouldn't you want that competition? And that's not exactly clear to me as to why we're not seeking that. You know, it's something that I think that there are a lot of uh, external forces when it comes into the idea of how you're going to receive funding for what your research is going to provide. Mm. I think that there are some uh, other ways of the, the environment itself, where as far as popularity is concerned. So I do think there are some external forces that are actually shutting down this type of discourse, but I don't, I, it's, it's a mystery. It's a bit of a mystery to me as to why you wouldn't want to seek the best person out to challenge your ideas. Because even if you lose, you, you still can come back and, and restate your position at any point in time. And I think people would appreciate that more times than not, but I, 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 although I think the number of people that would appreciate that is probably lower than it has been in a long time. And, and chances are, like, if you engaged in one of these intellectual battles, you probably are not wrong on everything. Like, no, nobody, no. nobody is wrong on everything. There might be a few theories or a few things that you might have to revise and tweak, and you're absolutely right. Like, that would actually just make you all that much more stronger, like, the next, the, on the next go-around. I guess what it comes down to, Joe, is that there's two types of fighters, if you would. There's one type of fighter who wants to fight the strongest champion possible, right? And they need to prove it to themselves. Like, okay, he's the best and I want to go against the best. But then there might be another type of fighter that's more strategic and says, oh, oh that, that, that weaker guy has the title now. Okay, now, now I should step forward. So I'm wondering if there's that kind of like strategy going on where in order to appear smart, you have to carefully curate or select your opponents. Yeah, I, and, and I think that goes back to like almost the newscasts that we were talking about, uh, I was mentioning just a moment ago, is that you really can't have any kind of dissension. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, you have to win. And not only do you have to win, you have to win convincingly mm. in order to maintain your audience. And I think that there is a real problem with that. Because at that point, you know, there's no, it starts to upend a, a number of other things where there can be no dissension. And that's what these echo chambers have created. And what happens in that process is the loss of real genuine discourse that allows you to challenge your own ideas in the process. And as you mentioned, you're not always wrong, right? You're not ever 100% wrong. Yeah. So it's just a question of really, how do you have to change your perspectives? And I don't think 
you know, it doesn't seem, at least intellectually speaking, that people are doing that as often as they used to. Absolutely. Yeah. And the key word is used to, because I, I, we will touch upon this later, that perhaps there was a time where that did happen. I want to talk about audience loyalty. So I think that the loyalty that, a, that fans have to a particular sports team or to a boxer is contingent upon them fighting at their best. And I, I think that that is something like, I, you know, especially when I watch UFC fights with my friends, they, they not only want their guy to win, but they want their guy to be against someone who's really, really strong. They're not just there to be like, oh yeah, my dude beat that chump or whatever. They really want to, their guy to win, but they want them to win against the highest opponent possible. And I'm wondering where we came up with this perverse loyalty where, we're actually training people to be loyal to people that aren't all that intelligent. It's just that they've stacked the game to appear intelligent. Yeah. Now it's, that is also a mystery to me because, you know, one of the things that I would even say in university campuses now where you can't even have a differing view and go in to speak in these uh, sometimes into these environments, at least certain environments anyway. One of the things that I used to be impressed with, and, and I don't want to jump ahead too far here because I, I know that you want to come to that, but I used to be impressed with how people like Milton Freeman would go into university environments knowing full well that he was the opposing view. Right. And everybody in there was actually looking to challenge him and he was looking to challenge other people. And it was like at Stanford, it was at these great schools. And for whatever reason, now we, we have this perspective of they're not even allowed to come here to speak. Hmm. And, you know, and I don't know what that transition was, why that, 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 that curiosity, that intellectual curiosity, what happened with that? I think that there are a lot of factors that, you know, that have gone into the, uh, and I think funding is one of those things. One of, uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, and this is not too long ago, but one of my favorite uh, political talk shows growing up was a show on CNN called Crossfire in the year, yeah. like early 2000s. But I like, but th that show I really, really, really loved because it actually pit people of opposing views that were of, of equal caliber. And it was done in a very like media oriented ratings kind of like, this was before clickbait was a thing. So it was kind of done in that way. But nonetheless, you actually did have intelligent people that were well informed on both sides have these like debates and have these discussions with one another. And I'm like, I, I can't think of a single program today that actually has like Democrats and Republicans sitting across the aisle from one another and talking in long form with one another. I can't think of a single show that even does that today. Not even close. And, I, and I'll go a step further is that, you know, one of the individuals that used to be on Crossfire, if you remember, was Tucker Carlson. Yeah, he was right. And so look at him now. Yeah, I mean, he, it, that, he's a perfect example of how ratings and have made him and echo chambers have allowed or made him acquiesce to this almost absolutist. I need to not only be right, but you really need to be wrong. Yes, and, and that is as important as me being, you know, making my point. So I need to show you that you're really, a, you know, um, an idiot. 
And that's completely unfortunate because, you know, that was, he was usually engaging with, I believe, with somebody like James Carville. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, you know, but, you know, you never see, you know, a James Carville on on, Tucker uh, Carlson anymore. anymore. I mean, you know, you wouldn't even, and it shows you where we've gone media-wise. Yes. And I, I think that that's a really big part of why we're not having, you know, we're not seeing other intellectuals engage with one another is because, you know, relatively speaking, Tucker Carlson is successful by yeah. a certain standard, right? So he's willing to compromise himself in that, in this environment. And I think that, you know, you start to see one person do it, then you start to see others probably follow suit. I would actually argue that, and it's actually the same case with Sean Hannity. His show used to be called Hannity and Combs back in the day, and he used to have, he actually did not host the show himself. He had a a liberal co-host on the show. I would say that Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson were probably smarter people when they had to kind of have someone to keep them in check at all times because it forced them to to actually pick out their words, be very, very precise with what they're arguing, have counterexamples. They had to be a lot sharper, a lot more on point when they were kept in check at all times. And it was it was a friendly check. Like uh, I think Tucker Carlson and, and Carville were pretty friendly to, to one another. And so was Combs and Hannity. It wasn't like, I hate you. And, and like, I'm trying to get you. They would have heated debates and de- debate, you know, heated arguments, you know, here and there. But I think that makes you sharper. And I actually, on, on my podcast, you know, I do record a few solo episodes here and there for a few minutes, but that's it. I need another human being to keep me in check. Because I think that when you're just going on and on and on and on by yourself, you kind of develop a godlike complex and you're actually a lot dumber because no one is calling you out on your shit. Uh, that's just it. You're, you're, you're not able, you're not articulate anymore. You're not exactly, you're not, you're, you're actually preaching. You're not thinking. Yes. And, and I think that that's what the difference is, is that when you have somebody else's your opposing view every single night that you may find out in that, in the course of that discussion that actually you do agree with the other side on a, on a particular issue and, you know, may cause you to just, but at the very least, you're going to be much more precise in your wording and and it's going to be a different conversation. The thing that you know, and I and I don't watch Tucker Carlson or anybody uh, with you know those types of shows anymore, those opinion shows. But the idea that you know, I remember him. He was like laughing at someone as a way of almost humiliating them. Wow. And I and I thought to myself, wow, do you realize how far you've actually fallen? And you know, as opposed to if you had someone else that with an imposing viewpoint you know, you would actually be engaging with that individual. And, you know, so, uh, and it's, it's a real loss. That's the problem. It's the losses for the audience, not necessarily for, for uh, him person. well, for him personally as well. But I think it's a loss for, for, for any figure. And, you know, and, and we're, we're, we're talking about the right a lot, but you also have like Rachel Maddow. You have also the left's version of, of, of this as well, where it's, one person, they call the shots, they got the, the, the weak counterpoint going up against them. So sure. I, I think this happens on CNN and on other on MSNBC in the, in the opposite fashion. And I think it's actually a loss for the audience 
it's a loss for that host because that host isn't growing intellectually. That that host is, is is surrounded by yes people. Yes, 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 yes. So we will we will get these plans. So they're not growing. The audience is not growing, and it's a universal loss for humanity in a way because th- that it shouldn't. You know, there used to be a doctrine actually when it came to the news called the fairness doctrine yeah the fairness doctrine where you had to actually give equal time and this was i think i don't even think there was cable tv back then this was just uh you know the the basic seven channels like abc nbc and so forth but then i think cable news came out and they they didn't have to follow the fairness doctrine anymore yeah and it was repealed uh under i believe uh, under ronald reagan Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Okay. Yeah, so I believe, I mean, you know, I have to double check, but I believe that was repealed under Ronald Reagan. And what you saw was essentially this, it used to be equal time on both sides, but now you don't even see that. But I'll, I'll go a step further. There's, there's, there used to be a show, um, Firing Line. And, yeah, yeah. you know, with Bill Buckley, where he would have somebody <laughs> like Noam Chomsky on. Yes. Yeah. Epic. Epic. Yeah, yeah, those were epic <laughs> battles. And, and, you know, and, and it was everybody was better for it. Yes. And, they, and, and now I, you couldn't find anything close to that. Now, I will say there is a firing line uh, show that's on PBS hmm. that I haven't seen, you know, all that often because I just haven't had time. But, you know, there would be Paul Krugman and somebody, uh, the host, I believe, is with, from the uh, Cato Institute or the Hoover, uh, the Hoover Institute, I think. Um, uh, so that where it was opposing views and there were tough questions and but it's still not the same level of like differing opinions where you had firing line where it was just these these, you know, they would have intellectuals really disgusting ideas that then everybody was better off for these things. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Like like thinking about like thinking about a show like Crossfire or whatever, you know, I don't know like these guys, you know, are very charismatic and they they have communication skills. Um some may even have like acting skills or have like an acting background and so forth. I think when you have these shows, you really need to get the best in the field like the cream of the crop intellectual heavyweights and get them to kind of debate because i don't think there's a sir because even if you have one of these uh people who like majors in communication and is very articulate and very charismatic they might just a wheel they might just win the argument based on their wink nod and charm and, right. and that's also right. kind of a danger. Like if, if, and some of these academics can be a little stuffy and a little monotone. So it, it, you have to think of these things like really, really, really carefully of like, we need top of the line people and we don't want somebody to just have the edge. And, and people are going to argue with me and be like, Aaron, you're going to put everyone to sleep. But I think we, this is what we need. And, and we kind Absolutely. of. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, otherwise, because what you have is uh, an electorate that's uninformed and essentially that you only look at one side as being absolute. And yes. I, I think that that's where, you know, and I do think, I will say this in pockets, I do believe that there is still some very good uh, intellectual discourse going on, but it's such a small percentage of media this these days and there really doesn't seem to be an incentive for these guys to engage with one another i mean i don't want to say like you can even see venture capitalists with different perspectives yeah you know that that are willing to engage in in people with differing opinions like uh i think it's david epstein with the book range and 
Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, and you know, they would engage each other based on their differing opinions. So it still goes on. It's just not at the same, same level that it seems like it's more, it's not as mainstream as it used to be. That's the one I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Now, in fairness, like, let's just say you got the uh, producers and the executives at all of these news network and they would be like, Aaron, Joe, uh, we hear you, man. We hear you. But here's the deal. People aren't going to tune in if we put these heavyweight intellectual forces against one another. Like we need the zingers. We need this. And they, they actually do make a point because it's like, all right, right now we've been so stupefied or, or whatever word you want to use. Like we might actually be at such a low level right now that if we did take these hyper intellectuals and put them up against one another, maybe very few people would tune in. So I'm wondering, Joe, what do you think is our personal responsibility to get smarter? Because I think that we as, as citizens have a responsibility to increase our stamina and to increase our threshold for things that we may initially find boring. I mean, for me personally, it's the most important thing that I, uh, I strive for is I actually seek out opinions to prove me wrong. Wow. Um, wow. I mean, for me, I always engage with individuals that have, and I always will take the differing opinion, uh, you know, the, the opposite, whomever I'm converse, conversing with, whether it be a conservative or whether it be a, uh, a liberal person, I like to hear what a person, I would like to restate why, you know, what it would look like from a liberal perspective yes. and what it would look like from a conservative's perspective, because then I can start to arrive at the conclusions. I can see how they arrived at their conclusions and why it's so difficult for them to actually open up and listen to other people. And I think that, the, you know, that's been a mystery to me is that I do feel we're, 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 we're morally responsible for, uh, you know, our uh, bettering ourselves and, and engaging. But I don't know how much of a market there is for that. These executives are probably seeing what you just mentioned and said, you know, we can put it out there and it would be a public service. But you're probably going to look at the ratings being what they are now, you know, where PBS uh, is in the middle here and then you have Fox and MSNBC, right? You know, yeah, yeah. And I think that that kind of drowns out a lot of good dialogue. We were just in the meetup about sins of omission, right? And it's like all yeah. the things that you don't do. And I think that every time we refuse to engage with somebody uh, who has opposite viewpoints, we refuse to engage at a highly intellectual level. We as a society are collectively committing sins of omission. Like we are, we are committing sins of omission by not engaging at the highest levels and avoid and, and living in an echo chamber. I think if you live in an echo chamber, you're, you want your worldview to be completely made out of concrete and never shatter. And that right itself is a sin of omission. Well, and the other part is you might get kicked out of that echo chamber if you have a differing opinion. That's, that's insane. And, and then you would think that someone living in the echo chamber, like imagine you're living in, I don't know how, I guess it's through a, a forum probably is where most of these things go through. But let's just say you have, you're, you're in a liberal or conservative echo chamber and they know you, right? They know, hey, Aaron's a good guy. He, he thinks the same way as us. And then I differ on one little tiny minutia thing. Now I'm all of a sudden like exiled from the community. But it's like, you would think that 
I would have gained already an in in that group where they know and trust me by now that I could have some differing opinions. Are you even seeing that? Uh, no, I mean, it's it, not at all. <laughs> and I mean, this is, comes into this, this absolutism that yeah, is actually yeah. starting to exist. And I think that you're seeing this in the parties. I think that they're, and I've said this many times, they're becoming religions. Yes, yes. Yo. You know, that these are like dogmatic institutions instead of areas where we can, if you deviate, they think it's going to automatically upend everything that they believe. I think and, it's worse than religions. I think Christians and Jews get along like much right. better than Republicans and Democrats at this point. They do point. now. <laughs> Absolutely. No, yeah, no. It, it, especially if you broke it down by like, you know, within sects of those of those groups. Yeah, they absolutely get along better and, and, and are willing to talk to one another much more than, yeah. say, Democrats and Republicans. And I don't, you know, and, I, and, and this is where one thing that I had mentioned uh, and I'd asked the question to Roger, and it was one of the more profound insights at one of our meetups, why there isn't this discourse when it yeah. comes to economics and politics. And, you know, he really answered it beautifully and said, well, look, if you admit you're wrong on this one thing, then all of a sudden it becomes much bigger than that, just that one instance. So therefore mm -hmm. you can't deviate from the party line. And, you know, that's where it's, it, but that's no different than, if you're going to say, you know, uh, almost have a creed, you know, for a religion. Uh, and so that if you're, you know, if you do deviate, then all, everything else could be is on the table. And I think that that's what people are really afraid of, actually, or the parties are too, I mean, as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that, you know, a few summers ago, there were some Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris debates. And, and, and these, these guys are opposites in, in many respects. Like Sam Harris is hardcore atheist. Peterson isn't like a direct theist, but he has obviously mythological slash religious inclinations that he sure. kind of brings to his perspective. And this was a rousing success. Like this was the WrestleMania of intellectual discourse. And the thing that disappointed me the most is that, um, you know, I think these three debates happened in Toronto or Canada, if I'm not mistaken. When they were over, it just ended. And that was, this was, there was no other, there was no, I thought we were going to experience an intellectual renaissance where this would be the first debate and then we would get Noam Chomsky and other intellects into the, into the fray, but it just ended right there. And, and there's people on the internet calling for like a Noam Chomsky, Jordan Peterson debate. Now, in fairness to Chomsky, he is like in his mid nineties now, and he does speak oh. a lot, you know, it is, it is a little more difficult for him to, 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 to pack the punch, but like, there, there needs to be that kind of resurgence. I, I think that, that that kind of energy that was going on a few summers ago needs to be re-sparked and rekindled. You know, and, and, it's, it's a, it's a, and we're all at a loss if that doesn't happen. And, and you're right. You know, you see something like that occur and you're excited. And you see like, okay, this is going to be a renaissance of like, you know, where real intellectual discourse is going to start to take hold again. I still actually, as just as a side note, I do still think uh, Noam Chomsky could probably hold his own, uh, <laughs> even at his advanced age. I, I really do. Um, you know, I think that he's, you know, he's such a great mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so that, but it, at the same time, it, there just doesn't seem to be enough 
interest. And I'm not sure why if that's not being generated at the university level, because I think that that's a really important point is that sometimes universities, uh, you know, they at one point, if you were going to have the opposing view, I know even at a, a, a fairly conservative school that right around me is Villanova. And um, it is, uh, I believe, I think it was um, Charles Murray was going to go and speak there. And they said no. Uh, and they, they actually did some embarrassing things in the process. I don't agree with Charles Murray on anything really, uh, much anyway. Um, yet, I think that the students were at a disservice by not allowing him to speak there. And that seems to manifest itself on a bigger level, I think. Or let's do one better. Why not have Charles Murray speak to an eminent biologist or say, or a psychologist of IQ or, you know, I would, that's, that would have been like the perfect setup. You got Charles Murray here with the bell curve. And now we got a PhD in psychology or, or neurobiology who believes that IQ is completely fake and let these intellectual, you know, titans clash with one another and talk about like the significance and the P values in this, in this, in this like journal. And, 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 and like, I want to see that. And I think that there is an app, like I, I will say this, I think there is an appetite for that, but there is some unknown force that is preventing this from happening. Because when I look at the comments of, of these little flare ups or these little intellectual debates, I see in the comments like, man, I want to see Peterson talk to this guy. I want to see Chomsky debate, blah, blah, blah. And, and there is like an interest and there is an appetite for this. I think that there's something else at play that's preventing these these dialogues from happening. Yeah, I mean, and it, and it's really hard to put your finger on it. You know, it, it really is. Uh, and, you know, I think part of it is that, you know, it's just genuine interest. You yeah. know, I don't know if there's the interest in hearing what someone else uh, with an imposing view has to say anymore. I, I, and, I, and I think that this is why sometimes you can see a great intellectual debate and it's going to be a one-off because it's just not a sustainable model where there's enough people that are interested. Now, at universities, they would actually, that's where you cultivate that. Yes. And that's where you cultivate that interest. But if you don't have that diversity of thought, then it's, there's not going to be much of a market of it when you're talking about the educated public getting out into the, the forum. And they're used to hearing what they want to hear to be quite honest. That it's kind of a, a very, it could be an indicator for something that we're just not seeing, you know, in the sense that speaking to what you had mentioned with the, the idea of the unknown force, you know, it's just, maybe it's as simple as universities are marketing themselves and, you know, kids want to go where they want to hear what they want to hear. And we're not, so we're basically not cultivating an audience that has, uh, that wants this on the menu. Exactly. Exactly. And it's kind of alarming that we're going down this, way, this, this road, because I think that one thing that we could probably speak to is the idea of the debates. Yes, um, I want to yeah. talk about that. Now, I, we're going to keep this pretty politically uh, neutral here. But one thing that, that I saw from this, and I, I, you know, as a history teacher, I've shown my students several times the Kennedy, uh, Ken Kennedy-Nixon debates. And, you know, people have a lot of takes on that. They said, oh, if Nixon would have just put makeup on or shaved, he would have won, you know, like, this, you know, there's many, many different angles and spins on that. 
But one thing is, is that they get into this one bit with, the, with Nixon and Kennedy about space exploration and public school funding. It is at such a high level. They, and they are so respectful to one another. They, they are like, oh, you know, I respectfully disagree with my colleague standing over there, you know, and they have all of the facts. They have the points. It's measured. And regardless of who you think won those debates, you saw real classy politicians. And it, it's kind of a shame that, you know, Nixon went ahead and ruined his career the way that he did, because, right. you, know, you know, like, like when you see him in the debates, he can actually hold his own. And it's, it's a, tra a travesty what he actually ended up doing with his presidency. But that's a side note. But the idea is, is that the level of respect and the level of of, of just intellectual cultivation was much higher. And I think that regardless of whether you're a Democrat or Republican, that was not there a few nights ago during the presidential debate. No, I mean, that was, that was you know, uh, that was blood sport, essentially. And it was just basically, I think it really represented what you see in the newscasts, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, is that who can shout louder? And, you know, in, in this particular case, there was constant interruptions and that was kind of, again, that's what people are used to seeing. Yes. yes. And, and, you know, and the, you know, again, keeping it apolitical, but that, that's what the candidates see as well. So therefore they're going to mirror that. And, you know, and it, the, then it just becomes a situation of who can yell louder. It, you know, I was troubled. I was troubled by those debates for a number of reasons. You know, it was something there that had been lost far more than just that one particular uh, debate. You know, it was, it was, it was, I think that it was the death of certain discourse. You know, one thing that is also um, starting to scare me a little bit is, you know, prior to the civil war, for example, I, I forgot his name, but there's this one Senator that actually attacks another Senator with a cane and starts like hitting him repeatedly. I, I forgot, I forgot the name of him. And once you get into, and, and the same thing, I was speaking to my Roman Empire expert friend um, when we were doing our podcast about once senators and once politicians start physically hitting one another, then there's going to be a civil war. Like, like that's kind of the precursor to any kind of civil war or civil unrest is just, it takes one punch. And did anyone get punched on that stage? No, but it's inching closer and closer and closer and closer. Especially, you know, I think that Biden and Trump are both alpha males. You know, they both, you know, have that kind of alpha energy about them. I think it's inching closer and closer and closer because when you start, I think that, you know, we'll, we'll start dropping profanities. Like the first step is profanities are gonna start entering the presidential debate. Once we hit profanities, it might cross that line to some kind of physical scuff that will be quickly broken up. But that's, that's that in history's sake, once one politician hits another, we go through a really dark process. And, and I think in a way, you know, you don't even necessarily need to get physical with it. I, that's just the, that's the end. That's the real sign of the end. But I, I, but before you even get there, I think it's even a step further. It's when you start, disrespecting the political process and meaning you know legislation and how things are getting done i think though that that both of these things whether it's um 
moves being done that circumvent democracy on both sides. I kind of have this issue that maybe when we're circumventing laws, it's because we're tapping into a more primal element of our brain. I actually, I actually think that because when you really think about it, rules and laws came about because really strong men were probably beating up weaker men, women, children, and just dominating civilization. Like, right? Like I would imagine like if, yeah, we, th- sure. if we think of an early civilization, it was probably really, really muscular men just beating the crap out of people and basically beating them down into submission. And then some, someone came along and said, hey, we got to have laws. It can't, society just can't function like this anymore. And I think that once we start circumventing laws, we're going back to that mentality of big muscles and just beating people down. Only we're not using our muscles, we're using guns and, and weapons to do so. Absolutely. And I think that that's exactly where we are. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's probably a beautifully, that's a beautiful analogy as well, because it actually speaks to the idea of the physical and altercations that how we're reverting back to some of these, these primal instincts, as opposed to actually following civil discourse. And I think that this is part of the whole entire problem as to why, like, if we're not engaging with one another, it turns into that. Because if you're not engaging the other side in an honest intellectual debate and you're just shouting them down, that it, this is what you, the result is. And I think you saw that on, on um, Thursday, uh, Tuesday evening last week. Yes. Uh, so, and I, and I, and it's, and it's, and you see how far, and you know, I will say this, I haven't, I, I gotta be honest. I, I didn't speak to anybody that didn't feel depressed mm, mm. after that debate. I mean, everybody felt awful. Yes. So, you know, I think that that's kind of, I hope that's a good sign in a way. I, I, th- I hope, well, here's, it could be a good sign. It could be a bad sign. It's, it could be good if people say, man, I'm really depressed by what I saw. And then they follow that up with what kind of better figures could we have running the country? And, you know, if that, if they followed that thought up of like, are there smarter people that we could have put on that stage last night? Then I think we're heading in a positive direction. And then I think our intellectual muscle might actually start increasing or it could go into the direction of man i didn't like what i saw and and let's just double down on this physical physical kind of lowbrow aggression and i i I don't know what's going to happen but i i'm getting that feeling that People didn't watch that debate and said, all right, let me pick up the Noam Chomsky book right now and sort of do- and, and start getting right. smarter. I right. think they're starting to double down on the lowbrow, uh, physical aggressive side of them. And I think it's because they're so afraid of being wrong. Yes. And this is kind of to the point of the discussion. When you're afraid of being wrong, then you're going to double down and this is what you end up as a result. And you will not be able to really contemplate in a clear, concise way of how am I going to necessarily get out of this, you know, because I know I don't like it, but I really know I don't like this. So I'm going to double down on what I don't like and acquiesce Mm. to this, to this, um, this candidate. And that's really scary because I I don't know if where we're going to get the political will or even the 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 nudge, so to speak, to to really start engaging 
the other side. I mean, because I do see people doubling down on their 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 preferences. Absolutely, and I, I think that I, I think that you know when you double down like this, it creates certainty. Like you have, because I think I think one thing I will say, and and I've I you know when I was a when I was a young kid, you know I did get into a few fights after school, mm-hmm. is that physical altercations or, or this doubling down mentality provides absolute certainty. Like, oh, there's a clear winner, there's a clear loser and, and so forth. Whereas it's a lot, it's much harder work to exist in the gray area. It's, it's much harder to exist in like the crossfire or frontline atmosphere of like, oh, I, I, you know, I concede that point to you. I, I think you're right on that policy, but I think I'm right on this. And that's a much more disciplined and a much more vulnerable state to be in, then let's just, let, let, let me just wail at this person and give it all that I got. It's hard work. It is hard I mean, work. you know, it's really hard work because you're constantly checking yourself as opposed to just telling yourself you're right. Yes. And, you know, one takes a hell of a lot more time than the other. Absolutely. And I, you know, that's, that's where, that's another aspect of it is that, you know, how, what, what's the level of effort that I'm going to, you know, where am I going to get my bang for my buck? And I think a lot of people will end up saying more times than not that I'm going to double down on where I am just because I don't have enough time to even engage in these ideas the way we, and when they're not easily, when they're not easily able to be consumed, in other words, these debates that of intellectuals uh, uh, really uh, from opposing viewpoints being readily accessible for everyone. Not to say that they're that hard to get to, but when yeah. they're not popular, when they're not really all the rage, well, then, you know, then you start to see that, as you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, you start to revert back into what is easiest, the path of least resistance. Yes, yes. I, I think I think you said it beautifully. We're 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 kind of subscribing to a, a dumber culture because it's the path of least resistance. It 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 is easy, it is accessible, and you know, we don't it's and but we're learning that the easy path is the path that leads to like the debate we saw a few nights ago and it's highly depressing. Yeah, and I you know, and this comes back to this, the idea of religions as well, right? Religions have all the answers for you, right? You just have to go there and research it and be part of the community, right? That's it. But when you venture out and challenge those ideas, that's a lot harder. You know, yeah. you're out on your own. You're not part of a community. You're not doing So you're challenging everything that you had previously, you know, believed or that you may still believe. It depends, whatever. And there's loneliness. If you leave your echo chamber, you're all alone now because when you leave the echo chamber, you've now been exiled or banished from your echo chamber friends and a new echo chamber is not going to absorb you because you still have old beliefs being kind of conflicted with new beliefs. So you don't belong in any echo chamber and now you're in no man's land. That's right. And, and there's a lot of fear that goes into that. So I think that that's where you're starting to see people, again, double down on what they already believe. And, you know, it, this is where in the parties, this is why uh, discourse between the parties has just broken down altogether. And, and, it's, and it's because if you venture out on one issue, you're alone. 
Yes, you're out there. I mean, you might as well be an independent at that point. <laughs> I mean, so it's like, you know, it's like, well, I agree with you on 99 things, but uh, yeah, but the, the hundredth <laughs> one is where I disagree. So, oh, you're independent. It's like, you know, it's like, no, that's, that's not really, I, no, I, I'm with you guys. But, you know, and this is where, unfortunately, you know, it's almost as if, you know, you need another party or, so you, or you need another way of even talking about it or some other time is the idea of, uh, how voting is done, you know, and things along those lines, how we select our candidates. But that's the result of not engaging well, each other. Hopefully, at least I'm trying here to create a, a refuge here on Truth Island of, of us, uh, us people that have been banished from all echo chambers. Exactly. And then we can kind of find a, a community. And I, I think um, uh, 52 Living Ideas also kind of does a good job of giving us exiles a, 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 a home to be at. Uh, Joe, once again, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. And, and I look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Awesome. This concludes the 34th episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.